Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. According to a BBC report from July 16th, a new interim Egyptian government has been sworn in with Army Chief General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who led the ousting of uh, President Mohamed Morsi, becoming Deputy PM as well as Defense Minister. The swearing-in followed another night of violence between security forces and Morsi supporters that left seven dead. That unrest has been ongoing uh, since July 3rd, when uh, the president was ousted. A spokesman for Mr. Morsi's uh, Muslim Brotherhood called the interim government illegitimate. Mr. Morsi was ousted on 3rd of July in what many have said was a military coup. The Army said it was fulfilling the demands of people after mass anti-Morsi protests. And millions did take to the street to protest Mr. Morsi. Logan resident Tim Sullivan is here to talk about events in Egypt and prospects for democracy in the Middle East. He retired as provost of the American University in Cairo in 2008. He's since returned several times, most recently in November of last year, to chair a panel on the prospects for democracy in Egypt. We're going to be talking about the Arab Spring, the current situation in Egypt, and we'll look to the future in the Middle East. We're opening the phone lines to ask you what you think. Was this a military coup, or did the military follow the will of the people? How should the U.S. respond? And what are the prospects for democracy in Egypt and the Middle East? Tim Sullivan, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. We appreciate you uh, coming in. Um, So these events right now, also the events of 2011, the amazing events in Tahrir Square, uh, you would have known many of the people who who would have been there, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you've you've been I don't know glued to the television. How, you've, how have you been following this? Glued to the television and the computer. I'm afraid uh, a lot of it you can follow online easier than you can on particularly on American television, which doesn't really cover this very well. Uh, so, just your initial reaction to the most recent events. This, uh, of course, the army says we're just uh, trying to preserve uh, the constitutional democracy. The very nascent, you know, since the since the events of 2011, millions did go to the streets uh, to protest uh, Mohamed Morsi and and his uh, government. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood are calling this a straight up coup. Well, the issue of whether it's a coup or not. Uh If you look at the dictionary, then, of course, it's a coup. But for the United States, uh, the issue is a legal question, not a dictionary question. So the issue is when is a coup not a coup? Uh, and that's bec- that is when it's not in our national interest to call it a coup. We would like to maintain good relationships with the one part of the Egyptian system with with whom with which we have great relationships, and that's the military. Mm. And uh, they are in many ways institutionally pro-American. They get all of their uh, equipment basically through us, and they like that equipment because it's the best in the world. And uh, many of them are also trained in American military academies and things of that nature. So we would like to maintain that relationship as an ongoing working thing. I know that the uh, Secretary of Defense said yesterday that he has talked to his counterpart in Egypt about 14 times in the last week and a half. Mm-hmm. And in short, that means he's on the phone with him every day. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the kind of relationship we need at this particular juncture because Egypt is very important. With over 80 million people, it is also the geopolitical center of the Arab world and one of the largest countries in Africa. Mm-hmm. It sits astride the Suez Canal the Red Sea, all of this. We need to have good relationships with the country, whoever is in, is in power. Mm-hmm. I was looking at a poll uh, just yesterday. Uh, it was showing that in 2011, the events of 2011, uh, a majority of Americans were tuned in. And, and uh, when they were polled, they said, yes, I'm paying either strict attention or some attention. Now, the, the, the events lately, which could end up being as determinative... Uh, it seems like Americans are not tuning in as, as much. Do we have, just have short attention spans? You were just telling us some of the reasons why we should be paying attention. Well, it would be hard for them to tune in if the American media don't cover it the way they did in 2011, and they haven't been doing so. Um, and so I think somehow the media decided it may be different. I think they got distracted by this issue as whether or not it's a coup, which is really not the core issue. The core issue is what is going to happen, what is happening, what is, what is it that's going on? And I think in many ways you have to think of this as an ongoing revolution. This is 
another step in a process that began quite some time ago, and frankly, which has been building up for quite some time. So people were surprised when it happened in 2011. Had they been watching, they shouldn't have been quite as surprised. Maybe at the timing, maybe at how quickly it happened, but that it happened should not have really surprised anybody. That's interesting because I think most of us were surprised. So what were some of the forces that were building up? Well, a lot of them. In one, uh, you had an an aging gerontocracy running the country. Um, Mr. Mubarak uh, was not the only octogenarian in power. There were quite a few. Um, And on the other end, you had a a demographic change in the country. Over half of the population is under 25. And their uh, future has been was bleak. I remember at a conference a few years ago in Morocco, the uh, Queen Rania of Morocco uh, gave a talk, and she talked about what she called the hope gap for young people. That is that they were losing hope in the future. And that's happening across much of the Arab world, where young people look and they see what's what are my prospects? What can I do? What can, how can I raise a family? How can I get on with my own life? Because in many cases they face very high unemployment. They get a degree from a university and they graduate into unemployment. Um, in Cairo, there were cases of people who graduated with law degrees or medical degrees working as taxi drivers. Not as a second job, but as their job because that's what they could get. Uh, there were other kinds of things, of people uh, doing manual labor because that's what they could get, and that, was, that would be lucky. A lot of people would be day laborers, and they may get hired today or they may not get hired today. And so when you have a, this huge portion of the population that believes now they've played by the rules and there's nothing there for them. And so that's been building up for quite some time in a number of countries. And so you could, you could see coming something that would be very different from the past. And the more the octogenarians behaved like father knows best, the more angry others got. Mm. And so it finally exploded. It's important to, to recall that the events of 2011 and the events of 2013 have one thing in common. The organizers of these huge demonstrations and 2013 demonstrations were even bigger than the demonstration in 2011. The organizers were young. Hmm. The oldest person in the organizing group for 2011 was was 32 years old. 32. The chief spokesman for Tamarad, which is the group that organized these huge demonstrations uh, in 2013, is 28 years old. Hmm. Amazing. Um, And so... They feel just basically disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. The political parties haven't really welcomed them. They say, sit down, young, young man, young woman, and we'll tell you what to do. Well, they're not interested in that. So they just went out and did their own thing. Mm-hmm. They've done it twice, and they can do it again. Yeah. So, Will, do you think this will develop into something resembling a, a Western-style democracy. Of course, we, we all know that mm-hmm. uh, that takes more than elections. It takes institutions. It takes people uh, accepting the back and forth. And so you have this large group, very powerful, and they've exercised that power group of young people. Uh, but will we continue to have this back and forth where if they don't like what's happening, they go to the uh, uh, they go to protest, and then something else happens. Will will it settle into? Of course, that's the hope of the West, isn't it? That it'll settle into in this powerful country, influential country, Egypt. It'll send it, settle into something resembling democracy. Well, you can't have democracy without Democrats. Um, that is, you can't have it without people who know what it means and are committed to it. And we keep saying it means more than elections, but for a number of people. That's all they focused on for quite some time, and therefore they're rather disenchanted with all of that because elections didn't quite work in in a number of ways. But to understand that democracy really means, in the West, liberal democracy, uh, respect for minority rights, uh, equality between men and women, uh, many things. It means social justice. 
It means all of those things in various mixes. Um, that's not how everyone there understands it. The Muslim Brotherhood has, has obviously understood it largely as a question of we'll participate in the elections and we won the elections and now we are in charge, period. Um, and that proved their, in many ways, that proved their undoing. Is that necessary? Is that the, the necessary option for the Islamists? I don't think it's the necessary option, but it is the way the Brotherhood uh, in Egypt behaved. It is also the way the Palestinian branch of it, Hamas, behaved in, in Gaza. Mm. So that's a warning sign that maybe that group is not going to be able to participate in, an, in a real democracy. Uh, right now, many of the other people who were uh, in the streets demanding that Morrissey step down are now looking almost for revenge against the Islamists. That's not the attitude you need either. Mm -hmm. So I think there are some very worrisome signs on this. Mm -hmm. Optimistically, uh, I, th I think the long run would look good. But the short run is very, very, very sketchy. Hmm. So uh, why are you hopeful, optimistic, that in the long run it looks good? Well, partly because there is a core of people in all of this that actually does understand what is at stake and what is involved. And um, that they now have a role that they were never able to play before. Because those are, the, you might call it, the real Democrats, the people who actually understand that it does mean give and take. It does mean you win elections and then you lose elections and you step down and you go and play a different role. Um, there is a fairly large core of that group of people. Um, and I'm optimistic that they will continue to now to be able to play a role. They're very important in the current cabinet that was just sworn in. Um, you've got a left, right, and a center in that group. But what they hold in common is most of them understand the kinds of things that we would understand when you mean when you say a democracy. Mm. Uh, they, they get it. Uh, certainly, I know the, the deputy prime minister understands that. I know that because he was my student, and I know him quite well. Interesting. And some of the other people do. But I, I think that's one thing. The other is this, this demographic bulge that has to do with the young people. They're fairly clear on some of the things that they really want and really insist on. They want democracy to deliver something in terms of the quality of life. And if these people who are now in government can stay in government long enough to deliver some changes, to give young people hope that there is a future for them, then in effect that will have the, the, the result of converting many of them to this idea that this actually can work. Hmm. We're talking with Tim Sullivan. We're talking about Egypt and uh, prospects for democracy in that influential country in the Middle East. Uh, also prospects for democracy in uh, the Middle East in general. And we're going to talk about the events of 2011, those extraordinary events. And uh, Tim Sullivan has said that uh, the events then and the events now should not be seen as separate. It's an ongoing revolution. Uh, we're, we'll talk more about that. Compare and contrast Egypt with uh, what's happening in Tunisia. Of course, they had their own revolution. And uh, Syria, we're going to be talking about that as well. Uh, Tim Sullivan is uniquely uh, qualified to talk about this. Uh, he is a Logan resident now, but until 2008, he was provost of the American University in Cairo. He lived there uh, for some 30 years and taught there, taught political science. He's returned several times, most recently in November of 2011 or 2012, to chair a panel on prospects for democracy in Egypt. And, uh, of course, he remains very connected uh, to what's happening there. We're asking you what uh, you think. How should the U.S. respond? I'll ask uh, Mr. Sullivan that uh, as we go along. And what are the prospects for democracy in Egypt and the Middle East? You can join us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Perhaps you have an experience in Egypt and the Middle East uh, or have a perspective that you would like to share. We'd love to have that. You can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Or you can join us on email at upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu slash hr. Skin cancer is the most common type of cancer in the United States. 
The harmful ultraviolet rays from both the sun and indoor tanning sun lamps can cause many other complications besides skin cancer, such as eye problems, a weakened immune system, age spots, wrinkles, and leathery skin. Wear clothing that will protect your skin from the harmful UV rays such as long sleeve shirts and pants. Stay out of the sun if possible between the peak burning hours, which are between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Find some shade or make your own with a broad-brimmed hat. Use extra caution when at higher altitudes as there is less atmosphere to absorb UV radiation. And lastly, make sure to apply broad-spectrum sunscreen of at least 15 SPF to cover all exposed skin. By following these simple steps, you can still enjoy your time in the sun and protect yourself from overexposure. This is Nicole Jackson for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Creme Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits and lunch sandwiches. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is Logan resident Tim Sullivan. He spent 30 uh, some odd years in Cairo. Uh, and retired as provost of the American University in Cairo, before that taught political science uh, there, and uh, has since returned uh, several times, most recently in November of last year, to chair a panel on the prospects for democracy in Egypt. And that's one of our central themes today. That's, uh, I think, a, a big concern for those of us in the West. Uh, could prospects blossom in an area where it, it, it hasn't democracy in the Middle East. And of course, Egypt is a, is a large and influential country in the Arab world and in the Middle East. So we're talking about the Arab Spring, current situation in Egypt, and looking to the future of the Middle East. You can join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495 on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page or by email to upraxis at gmail.com. So Tim Sullivan, um, we... We were talking uh, about democratic institutions, and you say long-term, you're, you're optimistic that this will turn into some kind of a, a democracy. Uh, and the U.S. has good relations with the military. But some say, certainly the Muslim Brotherhood is, is saying, that that's, that's not democracy. The military giveth and the military taketh away. And uh, so it, long-term, is, is this going to be set up in a model kind of like Pakistan or, or some other countries where really... Uh, the bottom line, the military is in charge. Well, the military has, has been uh, in charge behind the scenes in Egypt uh, since the Nasser Revolution of 1952. And as long as Egypt is required by geopolitical circumstances to maintain a large military, the military will continue to play a huge role in the country. It also has a huge economic role in the country. That's less well known, but they run... Uh, military factories, but they also run bakeries and uh, resorts and all sorts of stuff. Their the role in the economy is uh, is is not just in the military sector, and it's huge, maybe twenty percent of the whole economy. Um, and they're a major player. That's the eight hundred pound gorilla in the corner of every room. Is that compatible with democracy? Uh, uh, well, we have a huge military in the U.S., and we seem to have a reasonably democratic system. It has a few flaws, but it, it, uh, it continues to function. Uh, I think the attitude of mind and the habits of mind are important with this. And one of, them, uh, one of the issues now is going to have to be with the habits of mind and the mindset of political Islamists. What are they going to learn from this? And, and I don't think we know yet, but I, but I do know that there is a, 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 at least one breakaway group of young uh, Islamist young members of the Brotherhood who really are dissatisfied with the senior leadership of the organization, said that they led them into this swamp and they shouldn't have done so, and that these younger people have a better understanding of what a democratic system is than some of the older people who come out of uh, a history and experience where many, almost all of them spent a good bit of time in jail, uh, uh, it's a it's a secret conspiratorial organization led by the by, by these people and the younger people say no we want to go in a different direction now whether there will be enough of them to do that or not i don't know but i wouldn't be surprised if there would be spin-offs from the organization there already has been some uh, one of the parties is led by a man who used to be a member of the brotherhood and who quit and he and he was or was thrown out depend on who you ask 
Uh, and it was over the kind of role and the attitude toward democracy. And he now is the leader of a group that in English is called the Strong Egypt Party. Uh, he's clearly an Islamist, but he's prepared to function within a democratic order, and he actually understands what that democratic order is. The leader of the uh, equivalent organization in Tunisia spent a good part of his life in exile instead of in jail. He left the country. But his exile was in Britain um, instead of some other places that he might have been. Instead of, for example, being in exile in an Arab country, he was in Britain. And he learned by observing uh, how the system works in Britain. And he came back with a bit of a, a more mellow attitude toward this. And he believes, and has articulated this several times in different fora, um, that Islam or Islamic parties and democracy are compatible. And I think that part of the issue is to see whether that view wins over or the view of the current supreme guide of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt wins over. Mm. And uh, the, I think the jury is still out. Mm. I don't think there's any theoretical uh, problem. That is, hypothetically, you can have Muslim Democrats the way you could have Christian Democrats uh, or Jewish Democrats or Hindu Democrats. Mm. I, don't think, I don't think they're inherently incompatible. Mm. Um, but the warning signal of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt in power uh, does make you have to stop and think about it. Let me read a uh, quote. This is from Youssef Racha. Uh, probably not pronouncing that exactly right. This is in the New York Times. To continue this discussion, is political Islam at odds with democracy? You're saying it's the jury's still out. But this is his view. He says, When has an Islamist government, however democratically elected, ever ceded power to non-Islamists through a functional political process? Is democracy about periodically displacing absolute power by force or about laying the foundations for its peaceful rotation, including mechanisms not only for transparency and governance, but also for the protection of women and religious minorities? Instead of reaching out to other parties and trying to effectively govern, the Brotherhood focused on consolidating its power by forcing out competent national administrators and members of local government councils and replacing them with its own cronies and allies. That's Yusuf Racha in the uh, New York Times. And, of course, the experience with the Muslim Brotherhood was uh, supports his point. You're saying in it Tunisia it, it, it might go the other way. Uh, but again, the jury is still out, and I think um, the big example is really uh, is really Turkey, and there the jury is still out in the sense that you have to wait to see what happens if the current party that dominates elections actually loses an election. Then what they do, and we have to wait, and we have to see. So he, I think that's a very valid point. He is saying the jury is has reported and <laughs> it's all over. I'm saying the jury's still out, mm -hmm. but um, we don't really know. And this, the experience of the Brotherhood in Egypt certainly is a warning signal. What about the, the idea of um, protecting the rights of women and religious minorities? What, how has that proceeded with the Islamists in Egypt? That is a huge issue. Uh, there was, um, and just as an anecdote on that, the, there was a, a woman that I know who was nominated for, was actually asked if she would um, serve as Minister of Culture. She had been removed from her position as head of the Opera House in Cairo. Uh, she's an accomplished musician, and she had been appointed head of the Opera House, and they removed her. Um, over her recalcitrance uh, because she wouldn't agree with some of the things they were going to do. The new government wanted to appoint her, in effect, as <laughs> a flip side of the, of the issue, appoint her as the Minister of Culture, uh, replacing the Minister of Culture who had fired her. And um, they basically got messages from the, the Salafis, not the Brotherhood, saying, no, that's unacceptable. We cannot have a woman as Minister of Culture. Mm. So the new Minister of Culture is a history professor from Al-Azhar University, which is the Islamic University. Mm. The, the role of women in public life is, a, is a, an extremely sensitive thing for everyone, and particularly for the Islamists. And they basically see women having a very defined and circumscribed role. 
Um, and it's a highly, uh, the, the brotherhood itself is a brotherhood. There is a sisterhood, but they're, they are subservient to and secondary to the brotherhood. It's a highly patriarchal view of the way society should be organized. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that's one of the big changes they would have to make before they could really be regarded as Democrats. The other one has to do with religious minorities of any kind. And um, the the Sunni-Shia split, which uh, may baffle anyone who's not a Muslim uh, because they may not understand it because they may not see the differences or the importance of the differences, that is a big issue. Um, not too long ago, a um, Shia cleric and some of his followers were murdered in in uh, in an area just outside of Cairo, and the government was essentially silent on the issue. Um, now, the Shia population in Egypt is at most one percent of the whole. I mean, it's a predominantly Sunni country, unlike the Gulf, which has large Shia. Uh, populations. Egypt does not. And yet this this divide is still there, even though it's an almost insignificant number of people. Um, they're prepared to accept the legitimacy of what they call people of the book. That's the Muslims, the Christians, the Jews. But can they really accept the Shia? Well, they consider them heretics. So are they really, really Muslims? As long as you take that theological attitude, um, to citizenship, to the rights of citizens, then yes, there is a problem with that. And uh, in Tunisia, Rashid Ganoushi has has come out with a a much more tolerant and accepting view uh, than is than was true of the leaders of the Brotherhood in Egypt. Hmm. I want to follow up with women. Uh, you talked a bit about uh, women in public life. I wonder where would Egypt fit in among Islamists in Egypt on a scale from, you know, Taliban on one side to uh, very more liberal states on uh, on the other side? Well, if you look at the, the new cabinet, um, it has three women ministers. Um, one uh, is the minister of the environment, and she's a, a Christian woman who's been active in uh, dealing with various things uh, in the community of people who collect the garbage. Uh, and she's, uh, I know she's very bright, very capable, extremely well-organized woman. Um, but you've also got uh, a couple of others. Uh, the minister of health is now a woman. There's never been a minister of health who was a woman before. Uh, and very important, the woman, the minister of the, uh, information. Information in Egypt is, is, uh, the ministry is a very big deal because there's so much state-owned media. The three three largest newspapers are owned by the state, owned by the government. Uh, government owns television stations. Uh, government has uh, radio stations. Uh, they play a huge role in what the people read or hear or see. And it's a mess. <laughs> it really is a ghastly mess right now and has been a mess for quite some time. Now, she's an insider. She She's a... a a long-time employee of the state coming in presumably with the idea of cleaning it up and getting more freedom of the press uh, installed. It's be interesting to see how she can manage that because right now things are, well, I would say disgraceful. Mm. Um, and, I don't, and I don't mean that just for the Brotherhood. It's, this has been true for quite some time mm. uh, where the state-owned media... Um, well, it was more propaganda than it was news. Mm-hmm. Is that is that changing? I guess the the trend. Well, right them. now it got it's even worse. Mm. Um, I was looking at at two newspapers uh, yesterday, and one a state owned and the other one private, and the difference was night and day. I mean, the state owned was just this was pure propaganda. And the uh, the private one was, you know, would would be a competitor to the New York Times, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in terms of what it was trying to do, which was cover the news. Right. And the other one was telling you what they were convinced you were supposed to think. Right. 
If you just joined us, we are talking with Tim <clears throat> Sullivan. We're talking about Egypt, very influential country in the Middle East, in the Arab world. <clears throat> and so high stakes as Egypt uh, is deciding collectively uh, their future. Uh, of course, we had the events of 2011. Uh, many Americans were tuned into that. Fewer of us tuned into the events now. Tim Sullivan is uh, telling us that uh, it's just a continuing uh, revolution. And, uh, of course, many in the West, we want this to end up in uh, some sort of a democracy. Tim Sullivan says he uh, his long-term uh, the long-term prospects, he's optimistic about that. There'll probably be some fits and starts as uh, we go along the way. A lot of unrest in Egypt, uh, people dying. Uh, President Mohamed Morsi was ousted on July 3rd by the uh, army. And uh, so we have an interim government. And we'll, we move forward here. And uh, we are uh, exploring the Middle East and Egypt prospects, especially for democracy in Egypt and the Middle East. You can join the program at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. We'll um, talk a little bit more about the role of youth here. Uh, Tim Sullivan says this hasn't been covered sufficiently in his mind. And uh, we'll get into talking specifically about the future of the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, talk about a little bit about Syria as well. This is a... Uh, you have on one side Tunisia, maybe a little more optimistic that things will end up uh, the way the West wants it anyway. Uh, Syria is just a mess, of course, and uh, Tim Sullivan, I'm sure, can tell us a little bit about where he thinks that is going. You are welcome to join the conversation by email as well at upraxis at gmail.com. We'll be back following a brief break. Waste not. Never water in the hottest part of the day. Only water between 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. to prevent evaporation. And when the kids want to cool off, use a sprinkler in an area where your lawn needs it the most. Waste not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we have a global gumbo of interesting international sounds that we've discovered on recent releases. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join me for a global gumbo on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Free Oyster Ridge Music Festival, July 26th and 28th, just 90 minutes from Logan and Ogden in Kemmerer, Wyoming. Bands include Rose's Pawn Shop, Candy's River House, and the Coffee's Brothers Court. Information is at oysterridgemusicfestival.com. Thanks for listening to Access U. Time, Tom Williams. We're uh, talking about the situation in Egypt. This is a very important test case. Egypt very centrally uh, positioned geopolitically. Uh, it's uh, one of the largest uh, Arab states. And uh, there's a fight for the future of Egypt right now. Uh, protests, uh, people dying on both sides, uh, a continuation of uh, the events of 2011 in Tahrir Square. Uh, Mohamed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, who was elected democratically, was removed by the army on July 3rd. And they uh, cited uh, several things, anti-democratic tendencies. They also cited, Tim Sullivan, uh, the mishandling of the economy. That was interesting to me. That's, uh, of course, this is important as well. Uh, so I, I have a question specifically re- regarding the Muslim Brotherhood now. They are claiming, and not without some evidence they're being straight up repressed now by by the army mr morsi is in some undisclosed location others are being arrested uh, the army of course sees this as necessary but that's anti-democratic as well isn't it well not only are uh, some of them in jail uh, not very many but certainly uh, former president morsi is um, but also uh, funds of the organization have been uh, seized and held and uh, against future claims, um, and that's a lot of money. This was an organization that was getting a lot of money uh, from abroad, uh, primarily from Qatar, um, and uh, you know that that's a, a big deal for them. In addition to that, their TV and radio stations, they had some, and they are now closed, um, and that's a problem. The Americans have focused largely, as, as have the Europeans, on 
getting uh, Mohamed Morsi out of, out of detention, wherever he is, getting him released. That's complicated in a number of ways, and one of them is that there are some old uh, charges against um, Mohamed Morsi, um, uh, espionage. Um, I don't know quite how serious that one is, but one charge against him is inciting to violence. Another one is um, that he was in jail uh, at the time of the 2011 revolution, and he broke out of jail, or was broken out of jail, depending on, again, who you ask. Uh, But at any rate, others came in and helped break him out of jail. In the course of doing that, Egyptian police and army officials were killed so that there were deaths in that process. And there are many people now who think he should be tried and held accountable for that experience. So I think I would, what the U.S. has said and the Europeans have said, you need to release him. It might be more accurate to say either charge him or release him because right now he's not been charged with anything. Uh, there may be an investigation going on. The new government will have to look into that and see what to do and make a, either a legal decision, we're going to charge him, or a political decision, we've got to do something. But they clearly can't move forward on reconciliation until they get that thing, that issue, off the front page mm-hmm. where, where it's going to stay every day. Mm-hmm. What do you think the future <clears throat> might hold? You, you say there are you know, some groups <clears throat> splintering off of the Muslim Brotherhood, but the Central Muslim Brotherhood... It, might, I, I suppose, head in the direction, I don't know, terrorism. They say, you know, we were elected democratically, we were governing, uh, the army removed us, now we're going to withdraw completely from any sort of democratic process, and uh, is there a prospect for radicalization? There is a prospect for it. Uh, there may be spin-offs that will head in that direction. After all, the current leader of al-Qaeda is an Egyptian, and he has been chiding them for getting involved in these elections because he thinks that's a horrible thing to do and the only way to gain power is by force and the only way to hold it is by force. Um, And there may be some of that. Um, There are jihadists who could easily move in that direction. Again, the jury is out, but I do think the mainstream of the organization will try to remain active in public life in a very public way, and that really means... Uh, trying to figure out how to function in in a democratic order. Mm. And what are they going to learn uh, from this process? I don't know if the senior leadership is going to learn. I think it may be that you need a change of leadership. Uh, But there are some people below them. Um, Some of the people who are more directly engaged in the political party that the Brotherhood created, the Freedom and Justice Party. Some of their leaders look like they have a better understanding of what that's all about. It's not very well known, but the European Union tried to broker a deal whereby there would be a change, a voluntary change. This was in April of this year. And they got the opposition and um, many people in the Brotherhood to agree to make a change and have a basically a coalition cabinet, bring in more technically qualified people, and but bring in some people from the Nasserites, from the liberals, from the various groups in the country, um, into the Morsi cabinet. And they brokered the deal with the political party and with the opposition, and then Morsi vetoed it. Hmm. Um, That was probably his last chance. Hmm. Uh, But clearly, that is a sign that there are people in the Muslim Brotherhood, including in fairly senior positions, who understand that they they do have to function in a different way from the way Morsi and the top, the other two top people in the, in the Brotherhood uh, behaved in the last year and a half or so. Tell us a little bit more, more about the Muslim Brotherhood. This is based in Egypt, right? But it, it extends beyond Egypt. What it would, and there's a strong, as I understand it, um, <coughs> you might call Sorry. it welfare um, impulse here. They, you know, they feed people, et cetera, et cetera. What, what are the goals of the Brotherhood? Um, it was founded uh, by Hassan al-Banna uh, in the aftermath of World War I as, as a Muslim reformist organization um, and of reforming society by getting people to be true to the true principles of Islam. 
Um, they are a welfare organization. Uh, in times of trouble in Egypt, when we lived there, uh, they were very uh, common uh, to be seen when there were disasters uh, of various kinds that happened, uh, the earthquakes that happened, for example, or other sorts of things. They were there before the government were. Uh, showed up, and and they were really quite effective at that, and they were seen by the people to be interested in the people. Um, the Brotherhood uh, is, in many ways, a middle-class organization. Many of its members are professionals, a lot of doctors, a lot of uh, engineers in particular, um, and those two professions in Egypt are very heavily uh, Muslim Brotherhood. There are a lot of a lot of brothers in, in both of those fields as well as many others. A lot of them are in business. Uh, the, the, the chief strategist of the Brotherhood is a, is a multi-multi-millionaire multi, businessman, uh, and that's not at all uncommon. So it's a, it's a business-oriented, uh, professional class organ- dominated organization, unlike the Salafis, who are pri- primarily rural and not as well educated, not as well employed, uh, etc. Um, so there's a there's a a class divide among the Islamists as well. Let me follow up on that. Tell me a little bit more about the Salafis. Up until 2011, the Salafis are were politically inert. They had no political role. They didn't do much of anything. They were interested in again reforming Islam, but practicing Islam in a you know, pure and simple way, and going back to the principles of the time of the prophet. Um, like the Brotherhood, they do have a, a, shall we say, an attitude about the role of women in society, and, and it is clearly a subservient role. Um, but they became active, in, uh, politically active, in 2011. They got a lot of money from Saudi Arabia. So the Brotherhood was getting it from Qatar. The uh, Salafis were getting it from Saudi Arabia. And they did very well in the elections to the surprise of most observers. They didn't pay attention to them. They didn't know what they were doing. It's a very disparate uh, portion of the population, very dependent on local preachers and um, <clears throat> figures who are prominent in society, but in a local way. And um, their political views range from extreme left to extreme right to uh, medieval. Uh, it's, you can get just about anything in the Salafi group, mm-hmm. unlike the Brotherhood, where it's a much more tightly organized uh, institution that's been around for, you know, 80-some some years. Mm-hmm. And then you <clears> have... Um, I don't know, you might call them a little more secular uh, stra- liberals. You know, you'd, you'd have a, a fairly strong strain of um, people you might call liberals who, who are yes. se- searching for, and they, they really support this move toward a uh, Western-style democracy. And toward uh, a more open society, not just a democracy, but an open society so that uh, of there's an organization on um, personal freedoms so that People are able to make their own choice of lifestyle rather than having the government make it for them. And so uh, that's a fairly sizable portion of the population. And it uh, is largely uh, middle class and educated. But because there is a a large educated middle class in Egypt, uh, you get it uh, from from surprising quarters uh, and all over the country, but mainly urban Another characteristic of that group, it's primarily urban. Hmm. The U.S., interestingly, by the way, if you've just joined us, we're talking with Tim Sullivan. He retired in 2008 as provost of the American University in Cairo. We'll talk about Egypt and prospects for democracy in Egypt and the Middle East. U.S. Uh, apparently is uh, seen as kind of the bad guy by both sides here. <laughs> of course, the, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood said uh, the army probably wouldn't have proceeded here unless they got the green light from the U.S. They, they, they suspect they got the green light from the U.S. to, to oust Mr. Uh, Morsi. And on the other side, uh, they're accusing the U.S. Of, of cozying up too much to Mr. Morsi while he was in power. So I wonder what—it's a very delicate situation. I don't know how much leverage the U.S. has, and what should the U.S. do going forward? Well, the, the picture you've painted is actually uh, unfortunately quite accurate. That is, um, both sides blamed— the U.S. on this. Uh, 
and I think in both cases unfairly. Uh, it's important for us to have a good relationship with whoever is in charge. And I think our, our officials and others were trying hard to develop a good working relationship with Mohamed Morsi and his colleagues. And it was a, a work in progress. And I'm sure that they would come home at the end of the day and say, my God, how can I get up tomorrow and try to do this again? But they did. Um, but Egypt is a country where conspiracy theories are imbibed with mother's milk. And so people are very quick to produce a conspiracy behind almost anything. And so with American officials meeting with the Brotherhood, they said, oh, well, they're holding and keeping them in power. And then the other side said, no, it's with the military. Well, we had relationships with the military and with the Brotherhood. In the background, though, you have to understand something else, which is the military thought they had tamed the Brotherhood. The Brotherhood thought they had tamed the military. They were both wrong. Hmm. And we were, we were working with both of those two groups, as well as with the opposition as best as we could. And um, it's hard to be all things to all people. It doesn't work. So the public image of the U.S. right now is in Egypt is really pretty low. And yet, um, American education, wonderful, great. Um, if you look at the new cabinet, you'll see a number of people who are American educated. Uh, and that's a good thing, you see. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a hard time uh, for the U.S. and Egypt, and they're trying to keep, I'm sure, a, a bit of a low profile. Current focus is on uh, the idea that this is an opportunity to reset, to start over, have a do-over, uh, but also to focus on the problem. You can't do that. You can't have reconciliation as long as Mohamed Morsi is in jail and you haven't charged him with anything. He's... You can't go forward under those circumstances. We will leave it there. Um, much more interesting we could say on it, but uh, it has been very informative. Uh, our Tim Sullivan retired as provost of the American University in Cairo in 2008. He's since returned several times, and he's, uh, he's very plugged in. And uh, it's been very interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Tim Sullivan. It's been fun. Just a parting shot. You were telling me before we went on the air, I just wanted to get this on. I asked you had, what, what was the climate there. You said it's like Phoenix except drier. Much drier, yeah. yeah. Except, <laughs> so. ironically, Cairo itself is quite humid in the summer. Oh, interesting. So uh, that's interesting. <clears throat> we could get into much more of that. We are out of time. Uh, so for uh, producers Haley Housley, Taylor Halverson, and Shalane Smith-Needham, I'm Tom Williams. Uh, coming up is StoryCorps. That's followed by The Zesty Garden with Brian Earle. Hope you'll stay tuned to UPR. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. My name is Alicia Weigel, and I'm 45 years old, and I'm here with my oldest daughter, who's 18. My name is Ashlyn Weiler, and I'm here with my mom. We're just here because we have kind of a unique little life story. Um, I was actually born in a family with 46 children and three moms and one daddy. We lived up on the Colorado City, Arizona, and Hildale, Utah, the, right on the border, so it's a twin city. It's a community of Mormon fundamentalists who still believe in the original teachings of Joseph Smith, which are polygamy. So I was born and raised out there in this little community that was pretty closed off from the rest of the world. And so I was one of the few that went away and went to college in Cedar City, got a degree in education. But I also got my eyes opened in a big way as to what the real world was. And it was kind of hard for me, but I did finally, after college graduation, I went back to Colorado City and married a man that I didn't know at all. I, I met him one day and married him the next day. Just the whole society and stuff was pretty oppressive to women. Women were told what to do, to think like their their husbands thought and agree with what their husbands said and, and not question or doubt. 
um, one of the things that's happened is the leaders have started to excommunicate some of the men in the community. And at the time, my husband was told to leave the religion and I was told to go back home to my father and wait for reassignment to another man. And at that point, I just said, no, I'm done. (laughs) I'm done with all this. So I took my four kids and I, I moved to Hurricane where I still live today and since have remarried and doing pretty good. I was, a, I was his only wife. A lot of the, the men who get more than one wife belong to the upper echelon families. But I didn't actually leave right away. I, I got a job and started saving money first because I knew I wasn't going to leave my kids behind. And I just woke up and went into the kitchen and my ex-husband was in there and, and I just said, this is... Um, the day I'm saying goodbye. And I put my kids in the car and said, let's go on an adventure. And they were quite young. <laughs> yeah. How old were you? Nine, Nine or, or ten? ten? How did you feel when you got um, put in the car? <laughs> my mom told me we were going on a vacation. And vacation to me was Disneyland, Disney World. We went all over when I was a younger kid. That was a lot of fun. So I was all excited. And then I remember seeing my dad coming into the kitchen And he came in there and he had this really sad expression on his face. And I was like, are you packing? Are you so excited? And he just looked at me and then he walked away. And and that's when I kind of realized there was something else that was going on. I was still excited. I still wanted to go. So I packed up all my toys and got in the car. And I am so glad I did. My hopes for Ashlyn is that she will be happy in whatever she chooses. I hope she's successful. I hope she doesn't have to go through too many bad experiences, but just enough to make her strong and help her learn. That's pretty much what I want for all my kids. (laughs) I really want to travel and get out and see as much as I can and live my life to the fullest because I've only got one. It's just a life that we happen to be born in and lived and now it's over and we're moving on into something better. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving southwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at dixieregional.org.